Once again, happy Valentine's Day to everyone. Thank you. So um, last night we, uh, we do our sort of sermon Bible study, and I really enjoy that time because it helps prepare me for the sermon the next day, but also there's some interaction. And one of the folks who was joining us last night from the other side of the world um, lives in a 1040 window country where it's illegal to be a Christian. And this is what he wrote. When I found Jesus and his love, it was so amazing for me. It was not easy for me to choose this path of Jesus because I belong to the Hindu, to, uh, as a Hindu priest's son. It was a big sacrifice and I had a big challenge. Ten years, rejection from families. It was hard for me physically, but I have 100% joy and happiness inside my soul. And then he writes this. For me, Jesus' love is great, and I have found love in Jesus. It's a never-ending and everlasting love. My valentine is Jesus. Isn't that powerful? Uh, so if that's not a good advertisement to join us on Saturday nights at 8 o'clock, right? Uh, but what a great way to start our sermon from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning. And really, this here in the book of Thessalonians, both of these letters to Thessalonica, but uh, particularly in this chapter, is on the future. Is on the future. And sometimes when we think about the future, whether that's the near future or the distant future, our faith can be shaken. Uh, many times when people read the Bible, and particularly think of the book of Revelation uh, this way, they, they get afraid, they get anxious, they get worried, they feel dread about what is to come. Or others, maybe it's the flip side, and they never want to talk about those things, so they end up being naive. Right? Everything is just going to carry on the way it is. There's nothing that's ever really going to change. At least if I don't think about it, then maybe it will never happen. (laughs) So this naive. Now, neither one of those are good responses, according to the Bible. Um, Fear is not a good response, and being naive about what's to come is not a good response. For a very simple reason. God. That's why. That's why we don't have to be afraid of what's to come, nor be naive about what is coming. Um, if there was no God, who does, and God did not sit on the throne of his sovereignty, then I get how the future would be a very scary, unknown thing. That we're probably not heading anywhere good. In the end, it's not going to turn out well. But God, God is on his throne. I think that is what we get reminded of here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's a tough passage. I just want to prepare you for this. It's a difficult passage um, interpretatively, but let's try to understand what's being said, uh, but not get lost in the weeds, not get lost in the details, understand the overall um, picture here, which is a command to trust in the sovereignty of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're just going to go until verse 12. He writes this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, 
We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. So here's where we're going right now. Verses 1 through 3. There is no need to be shaken. There's no need to be afraid. 4 to 7. Don't be naive about what is coming. And then we'll end 8 through 12 talking about how God is sovereign over it all. Let's look at the first three verses. Uh, he's, Paul tells them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Um, he writes about the coming of the Lord Jesus. We've seen this in 1 Thessalonians. We've seen it already a little bit in chapter 1. This seems to be a real focus for the Thessalonian Christians, and we kind of learn why, because there's some false teaching or bad teaching that's going around as well. But he says this day is coming. It's going to be one big, glorious, amazing day. Jesus comes, we meet him in the clouds, and we're with him forever. And he says here, don't be shaken. Don't be shaken. Don't be afraid when you keep hearing all of these different reports about this coming day. Uh, He says, don't be shaken either by a spirit. So maybe someone who has a prophecy that they believe is from the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's demonic. Maybe it's just, you know, someone's own imagination. Uh, A spoken word. Somebody is giving a message, a sermon, a teaching about this. Or even says here, a letter as if it was from us. So we learn here that there is a fraudulent letter going around as if it was from Paul and the missionary team um, claiming to teach certain things about the end that he says is not from us. So don't worry about it. By the way, the same is true today, right? We hear uh, somebody has a prophetic word about the end or they have some sermon that goes around or some book or letter that talks about uh, how we're in the end of the world and all these different things. And some people's Christian faith gets shook by it. And he says, you know, they're writing to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, as I said, this day is pretty clear when it comes. When Christ comes, he comes on the clouds Uh, But they're saying the end is here, the end is near, uh, and people should freak out about the fact that we're right here at the end. They should live in fear. 
I'll just talk about fear for a second. Fear uh, usually is not a good thing. <laughs> now, fear is an emotion. Uh, it's a mentality, and it isn't always bad. There are such things as a good fear. Uh, you know, we talk about a, a, a kid who maybe touches or gets his hand, hand near a hot stove, right? And uh, if you see a hot stove, I have a picture of a hot stove, that uh, you, should, you should fear. <laughs> you don't touch that with your hand. If I get close to that, my hand burns. And then a new little fear sort of works in his or her little mind, and that's a good thing. Don't touch hot flames. Don't touch a candle or whatever it is, right? Poison has a label. Don't take this. That's a good fear. Don't eat this stuff. It's dangerous. And we live, we're actually motivated by certain fears that aren't necessarily bad because they're based on reality. Uh, You don't want to be unhealthy, so you need to diet and you need to exercise. If you don't diet well and you don't exercise well, you'll likely be unhealthy. So if you have a a sort of fear of being unhealthy, that's a helpful thing to motivate you to diet and exercise. You, you fear being broke. So you don't go into great amounts of debt. You fear wasting your life. So you want to use the time well. Those aren't necessarily bad fears. Those are good fears. And there's one other good fear, of course, that's the fear of the Lord. Meaning a right understanding of who God is. He is all-powerful He is the sovereign Lord. He is our creator. And he is the judge in the end. Now in Christ, he's our father. We know him. We love him. We're in relationship with him. But that being said, most or many of our fears are not based on reality. Uh, They are instead based on, as he says here, some whim, some letter, some idea that's going around. And we can be paralyzed by these fears. We can say, I'm not willing to risk anything. I'm not willing to do anything uh, to, to get out there and, and, and try for certain things because of this fear, this constant fear of man that we have. Uh, oftentimes fear really is just a lack of faith. I don't trust God enough. I'm too worried about other things and so we don't move ahead. And the encouragement here is when it comes to these things, don't be afraid. God is sovereign. He's on the throne. Um, don't, don't be afraid of suffering. Suffering is part of life. You and I will suffer. We'll learn from it. We'll grow through it. And all suffering is temporary. Don't live in fear of death. In Christ, death is the great transition. It, it's coming for all of us. <laughs> Not to sound too morbid. But all those who have gone before us are calling out. You will join us eventually. The day is coming. But for those in Christ, it is the great transition to be in the presence of the Lord. It's not something we need to live in fear of, to be paralyzed by. Don't live in fear of the future. As Christians, the the future is filled with hope. The best is yet to come. Um, Where is this going to end? It's going to end with God's people marveling at the sight of the Son of God and his return. That's a pretty glorious future to come. And one more thing, don't live in fear of judgment. Yes, we fear God because of his power and his fatherly love. We we don't want to displease God as a father and as his sons and daughters, but we don't live in fear of God as judge because Christ has paid it all. He's paid in full the penalty 
for our sin. And Jesus is enough. When we stand before God, we'll say, Jesus is enough. He's, he's paid the ransom. If Jesus isn't enough, I have no hope. But if Jesus' death and resurrection is enough to purchase my salvation, then I'm with you because that's my hope. <laughs> and so we don't live in fear of a future judgment. Don't be shaken. Don't be alarmed. Don't live in fear of what's to come. We, we live with a confidence that God's in control and what is coming is actually really good. <laughs> really good. This is a criticism I have sometimes of the way often Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, talk about eschatology, the end time stuff, and books that get written about the end. It, it seems like uh, that part of the motivation for those books, and maybe because it sells books better, is to sort of present a fearful picture of the future that we have to live in constant dread of and constant mindfulness of. When really, throughout 2,000 years of church history, the future is one that Christians have said, I can't wait. <laughs> uh, I'm almost getting a little giddy about it. I'm, I'm excited. I'm anticipating a, a glorious and amazing future to come. Things now, are, things are going to be far better then than they are now. That we keep on singing now because we're going to see the king. That there's no more crying there. We're going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to see the king. It's a day of hopeful expectation, not fear and shakenness and alarm. But at the same time, he continues on here and says, don't be naive. So we don't want to live in fear, but we also don't want to be naive about what's coming. And this is where it gets a little bit difficult interpretatively. So verses 4 through 7, don't be naive about what is to come. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. Why? Because before that day comes, the day of Christ's return, two things need to happen, according to Paul in his writing here. The rebellion has to come first. The, the apostasy, apostasia is the Greek word there, this great turning away from God, this great rebellion, anarchy, uh, I think I used the term, the phrase last night, all hell breaks loose in a literal sense, right? In the world, this big rebellion has to come first. And he mentions the man of lawlessness must be revealed. Uh, a lone figure, most likely a, a, an actual man, an individual. Jesus talked about an antichrist. The Bible says, yes, many antichrists have come, those who oppose Christ. But there is an Antichrist, capital A, sort of a lone figure at the end. And certainly the book of Revelation, Apostle John talks about the false prophet, an individual who deceives the nations. So that has to happen first. No, it's interesting. We get tied into this interpretatively saying, well, who is this and what's this all about here? He's only mentioning it for one reason. He's saying, so basically to prove that this letter going around is false. It can't be the end because these things haven't happened yet. Remember I told you that? That's what he says. Uh, he, doesn't, he isn't really intentionally going into all this to get into the details. He's just saying, so don't be alarmed. But of course, we want to know more. Who is this man of lawlessness? He's called the son of destruction. It's said that he opposes and exalts himself against God. And then he gets into, I think, which is actually a much more difficult interpretative thing, that there is something restraining him. That's why it hasn't happened yet. 
And this someone, so he goes from something to someone, who restrains him hasn't been removed yet. So basically there's something that holds back this rebellion and this man of lawlessness. And when this something is removed, then the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness arises and everything goes to craziness is what he's getting at. So if you're interested in the Bible, you're saying, what, Pastor Rick, is he talking about? (laughs) What is he talking about? So first of all, this man of lawlessness, um, people will ask the question, who is he or who is this? That's the easiest question you can ask me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who this is. Um, again, it's this Antichrist figure, this false prophet. Um, is he in the world already? Is he still to come? I don't know. I don't have answers to those types of questions right now. Um, he is described, as he says, as one who opposes everything about God, but claims to be God. So that, that's something we know about him. Um, he also is said to arise, taking his seat in the temple. Now, uh, Follow me here. I'm going to get a a little deeper, so just try to stick with me, and we'll get to some application. But um, what does he mean that he arises and takes his seat in the temple? So some will take it this way, that it's referring to the actual physical temple in Jerusalem, which is destroyed. It's just, its remains are the only thing left of that temple. It was destroyed 2,000 years ago in 70 AD. So the sort of conclusion people come to is, well, then it needs to be rebuilt. And then when it gets rebuilt, this Antichrist figure will take his seat in there, and that will be the man of lawlessness. Um, that is certainly one way you can go with this passage. It's not the way that I go. You might have been able to guess from the way I'm describing it. Uh, the Apostle Paul uses that term temple many, many times throughout his letters. Not even one time does he use the temple to refer to the physical building in Jerusalem. Not once. He only uses it to refer to us as our bodies, as a temple, or to the church as the new temple of God, the dwelling place of his Holy Spirit. Just like in John it says many antichrists have come, meaning they're false teachers within the church, I think he's saying that he takes his seat in the church. He's a a false teacher from within, someone who claims to be a Christian, somebody who claims to be part of the church, a deceiver from within. That's my understanding. If you disagree with me, you say, that's okay. Go ahead and and read up and study. Grab your study Bibles and commentaries and go where you want. Now the more harder question, to be honest, what is this restrainer thing all about? So um, uh, first of all, he's called a what, then he's called a who. Uh, So what is this restrainer thing? Three major interpretations have been given over time. And you can kind of wrestle with it, and I'll tell you where I, where I landed on this. So, um, it's the Roman Empire. That's the first one. Uh, the rule of law. And you can imagine that sounds very foreign to us, but the Roman Empire did ensure a level of order, of society. It, it sort of maintained justice in the land. So, Paul could be referring to <clears throat> when that is removed, that law and order, that sense of society, then... Rebellion breaks loose. And when anarchy breaks loose, the man of lawlessness will step into that picture. Okay, good, could be. Uh, The second interpretation often commonly used is it refers to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is in this world, at work, the very presence of God, and he is restraining this rebellion. And eventually, he's removed, the rebellion breaks loose, and the man of lawlessness arises. 
And then the third view is that it refers to Michael, the archangel, or some form of angelic protection in this world that God has set up. And then when God removes that angelic protection, then all of the chaos breaks loose. Now, uh, before we get to the application, I would say this. For the longest time, I would have said it is the Holy Spirit. Uh, But I think I've changed my view, which is good. That's what you do when you study the Bible. You continue to rethink it. Even if you've been a pastor for 10 years, you rethink it and say, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I should rethink what this is. Uh, For a very simple reason, uh, the Holy Spirit is never removed from the world. That, That mentality is just found nowhere in the Bible. How could the Holy Spirit ever be removed from the world? It doesn't seem to fit what he's saying. So I think I would go with the third view, uh, that this refers to some type of angelic protection that maintains order for the time being. And when God says the time has come, he removes it. And when he removes it, the rebellion occurs and this man of lawlessness comes. Um, there's a couple things in line with that. One, he mentions that the, all this rebellious thing is all sort of set up by Satan. He's the sort of power behind it. What is Satan? He's a fallen angel. So there's a spiritual battle at work there going on. Uh, but really, Daniel chapter 11 and 12 is what fully convinced me, or more fully convinced me of this view. And that is it talks about Michael as the protector of Israel and that Daniel talks specifically of this coming Antichrist and that Michael will then arise and defend uh, Israel and so forth. And so I think what Paul, the apostle, is doing is drawing on Daniel 11 and 12 when he talks about the restrainer that is ultimately removed. If, If I do nothing here but encourage you to do your own study of the Bible and dive deep, then I've succeeded, okay? You don't have to believe what I believe, but that's, a, that's what it, the point is. But here's the application. Don't be naive. Don't be afraid, but don't be naive about this world. Things will get bad. Things have already gotten bad throughout history, right? History is in flux. It gets really bad sometimes and then gets really good. But he's saying it definitely will get really bad in the end. Actually, it's kind of a paradox. It gets really good because the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth and the Christian faith transforms cultures. But it gets really bad at the end at the same time. How can that be? Because Jesus said that the weeds will grow and the wheat will grow. That the world just gets fully populated with lots of Christians and it gets fully populated with lots of weeds as well. Don't be naive about people. You know, there's a mentality that people are generally good, it's just their actions that are bad. That doesn't sit well with me, right? Well, why are their actions bad? Uh, Because we are sinners. There's something broken about this world. The idea that we're going to head into some sort of social utopia um, of, of complete world peace. I mean, if we had world peace for a day we would lose it by tomorrow, right? It's not going to last because eventually some dictator or some country will say, I think I've had enough of this and I'm going to invade my neighbor. Uh, It won't last. Okay, that's too pessimistic. Yes, things can get better. We should fight for peace around the world, fight for a better world, be salt and light. And like I said, wherever the Christian faith is spread, it almost always tends to be a positive light, helping hospitals and schools and healthcare and care for the poor and equality between men and women and so forth. So there is good. I don't want to be too pessimistic. But ultimately the world is broken. 
and it's beyond our repair. It needs a savior who comes from heaven to fix it. Don't be afraid, but don't be naive about the world. And why is that? Because God sits on the throne and he's sovereign. Look at 8 through 12. He describes here how this whole thing ends. He says, he reminds us that God is sovereign over it all. He says, first of all, that the lawless one will be revealed. That's a good thing. It'll be clear who he is. Like I said, I have no idea who this person is. Uh, I have no idea whether he's in the world right now or won't be in the world for another few hundred years. I have no idea. But he's saying it will be revealed. It will be clear. You're not going to sit there and guess. It will be clear. But then what happens, he said, whom the Lord Jesus will kill. Now again, this hasn't happened yet. He's talking about a future event, and he talks about it as if it's already accomplished. Uh, there, there is no challenge to Jesus and his sovereignty here. He says he will kill by the breath or the spirit of his mouth. With one word, the battle is over. And it's never under question. He describes here the lawless one coming by the activity of Satan. So he's the, 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 the genie behind this. He's the, the wizard behind the power of the lawless one. And it's just as if we pull back the curtain and see. We know exactly where this is coming. He says he comes with false signs and wonders, deceiving those who are perishing. So don't believe every miracle and sign and wonder that you see out there. There are fake signs and wonders, or there are signs and wonders that are empowered by something dark and evil. But notice who he says are deceived. Not the Christians. And that is very important. Sometimes I'll hear Christians talk about, well, we've got to be careful as Christians not to be deceived by the Antichrist or something like that. That's an impossibility. Jesus himself said it's an impossibility. He would try to deceive the elect if that were possible. (laughs) In other words, it's not possible. He deceives, it says here, those who are perishing. And why? Paul says because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They don't want it. They don't want the gospel. They don't want the truth. They prefer the lie. The responsibility is on them. And then this phrase, verse 11, which clearly demonstrates the sovereignty of God, God sends them a strong delusion. That's hard for us to hear. God is the God of truth. He doesn't lie. He's never deceptive. But he is sovereign over what is to come. And sometimes as a form of judgment, if some would prefer the lie, they fall deeper and deeper into what is false. And that's what he's saying is going to happen. Why, he says, because they take pleasure in unrighteousness. They would rather believe what is false and stay in their sin than to turn from it and turn to the truth. One thing I don't want you to miss, I think this is the point of this passage, is God is sovereign over all that is to come, no matter what. Um, How do we know that? First of all, Paul is talking about it. How can he be talking about something that isn't going to happen even now 2,000 years later? It hasn't happened. is isn't going to happen for maybe hundreds of years or who knows when this will happen because God is sovereign. He's in control. He already knows what is to be. That's why he can write about what is to come. Also, notice that the lawless one will be killed, as I mentioned. There's not even a microscopic atomic level chance that he will actually win. It's as if the battle is already determined before it even 
starts. We see the same thing in the book of Revelation, by the way. Chapter 21, we see the armies of darkness sort of rising up. This picture, this symbol of the armies of darkness rising up against God's people. And then Jesus appears on the scene with the armies of heaven. The next verse says, and after Jesus won, (laughs) no battle is even described. After Jesus won, this is what happens. It's as if it's already predetermined. The Bible leaves not even the slightest, tiniest bit of a chance that God in the end does not come out victorious. And again, understand that no believers, no true people of God are deceived. There are those only who refuse the truth. Are you worried about it? Friends, I would just say stick to Jesus. There's nothing to worry about. You will not. Nobody outsmarts God. Nobody tricks God in the end. And as I said, also we see the sovereignty of God and that he sends the delusion. The delusion is not outside the hands of hand of God and his sovereignty. It's a form of his judgment that he ultimately uses to accomplish his will. Do you believe God is sovereign? Let me just say, friends, this has been one of the greatest comforts in my life. You say, well, that, really? That doesn't sound like a very comforting thing. Well, let me get to it for a bit. <laughs> there is no need to be afraid. He's on the throne. Never once has anything that's happened in human history or will happen been out of his hands. Never once. Don't be naive. He told you what's coming, but he's provided a way out. There is a judgment coming, but he's provided a savior in Jesus Christ. As Christians, we literally up every day knowing that he's got the whole world in his hands. And... He's good. (laughs) Uh, If he had the whole world in his hand and he's not good, we're in trouble. But he is sovereign and he's good. Truly good. Like good, unlike we've even seen good. Pure and perfect. And ultimately works it all towards our good. When it comes to my suffering in life, knowing that it is in God's hands is far better than thinking this is just a crapshoot. This is just a chance. Well, maybe I end up getting heart disease and maybe I don't. Who knows? It's out of God's hands. It just might happen. It might not. No, knowing that there is a sovereign God that is in control. And even if that ends up being my end, it's within his perfect will and he'll use it all for good. My death is in his hands. It is appointed once for each person to die and then the judgment. My family is in his hands. Uh, any, anyone here who's a family man, family woman, knows this, right? I would much, 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 much rather die than watch anyone in my family die, right? Anyone agree with me on that? <laughs> any one of us would say that, right? So uh, far more than fearing about my own death, I fear something happens to one of my kids or to my wife. But my family is in his hands too. I can't be God to them. He is sovereign over their lives, their health, their life and death as well. God is sovereign over his church. As a pastor, this is a great comfort as well. I don't want to screw it up. <laughs> uh, I've been part of a church that's, two, uh, that's 255 years old. I really don't want to mess it up. <laughs> I don't want to be the, the guy who finally, after 255 years, blows it, right? It's not in my hands. Who do I think I am? He's the sovereign God, and it's ultimately under his control. And the future 
my personal future and the future of the world, it's in his hands. It's his story. And the end is already written. We're just waiting for it. Friends, don't be afraid or naive, but trust in the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty is a hard thing sometimes to wrap our minds around. But he knows what is to come. He plans the whole story, and he ordains the future. Well, you might say, this is the sort of philosophical struggle, Am I, are people still responsible for what they do? I mean, we, do we still make choices? Um, yes, absolutely. The Bible's clear about both. God is sovereign, and yet we're still accountable. But every day, every bad day, every cold or flu or injury, every conflict that we face, he uses ultimately for our good and to his glory. A world outside of his control is not only chaotic, it is unthinkable. Instead, we live without fear and rest, trusting that he sits on the throne. It's Valentine's Day. One consistent theme throughout the Bible is that God's people are his bride. Are his bride. His beloved. And because of that, there is no need to fear. I started off talking about this brother from a 1040 window country who found his true valentine in Jesus. He had one other comment, and I want to end with that. He writes, my father, his earthly father, has four temples of the Hindu religion. His father's dream was that he would become a priest of the Hindu religion. When he chose to follow Jesus in his path, this path was not easy. It was different. It was opposite than my father's dream. My father offered me lots of his treasures and his heritage. In his country, being part of the the priestly sort of segment is the highest caste, the Brahmin caste. I chose Jesus first and rejected my father's offer. So I am happy because of Jesus and his love. Friends, the hope of the Christian life is infinitely better than any worldly wealth or gain we have. Keep your eyes on him. Would you pray with me? Gracious God in heaven, encourage our hearts today with the Christian hope. If anyone here is living in fear, is maybe filled with anxiety about the future, about their own health, about their own death, about what is to come for our country or our world, let's just take comfort together as we remind one another that God is sovereign on the throne. Lord, help us not to be naive. We, we know this world is a broken place. There are some great suffering and sin in this world. But our trust, our hope, Lord, our Christian hope, that is, is that you who love us will turn all things to good. And in the end, we will see more clearly than what we can't see so clearly now that the whole story was in your hands from start to finish. And ultimately, it was a love story for your bride, whom you will keep with yourself forever.
Be glorified, be praised in our midst. Be with us as we sing to your praises now. In Jesus' name, amen.